Happy New Year from the Terrible Warriors. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're on a short break before we return with new recordings of our tabletop sessions. But before we return, we wanted to bring to your attention our friends over at Me and Steve Talk RPGs. We've been spending a lot of time on Discord and helping each other out with game ideas and having some really good tabletop conversations. And I thought, what better way to spread the love than to swap our podcast feeds for one week? A few weeks ago, they hosted the first episode of our Simbarum campaign at the foot of the Titans. And now this week, we're returning the favor by hosting an interview that they conducted with Jay Little. More on that in a second. Me and Steve Talk RPGs was born out of those conversations that inevitably happen in the parking lot or driveway after the gaming session. The two Steves host a podcast that is a grab bag of TTRPG-related topics, stories, tips, and tricks, with interviews with the makers and shakers in our community. And just like us, they release new episodes every Tuesday. So if you like what you're about to hear, check the show notes and follow and subscribe to their podcast wherever it is you like to listen. So what are you about to hear today? In this episode from the Me and Steve Talk RPGs podcast, they meet with Jay Little, a game designer who's worked on small, humble projects like Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying and FFG Star Wars, and also designed the 2D20 system from Adiphius, which you might recall powered our Star Trek Adventures games. So suffice to say, he's left an indelible mark on the TTRPG world. Enjoy the listen. We'll be back next week when we return from our extended holiday break with our own actual play session playing Darla Burroughs. Dear Great Cthulhu, please stop giving me superpowers. But for now, sit back and relax and enjoy an episode from me and Steve Talk RPGs. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to me and Steve Talk RPGs. How's everybody doing this evening? It's Steve again here along with Steve. Howdy ho. And uh, we've got a special guest tonight. We do have a very special guest on today. Oh, that's right. I think I'm supposed to be recording a podcast now. (laughs) All right. So the voice you hear is that of Jay Little, who's our guest this week. So welcome, Jay. Thank you very much for having me, Steves. (laughs) I appreciate it. Yeah. So what we kind of thought, and and this is one of those things that gamers love dice and obviously all your game systems, which are usually dice driven. And at least almost every gamer I know is always kind of fascinated by the systems and how they work. At least I know I am, and I've had a lot of those conversations over the years. We reached out to Jay because Jay has the distinction of having actually designed at least three well-known dice systems for different RPGs. And who better to explain the nuts and bolts of game systems than someone who does it? Who indeed? If only you could find such a... Oh, wait, that was me. The, the three games that uh, he's referring to would be uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 3rd Edition, and then the Star Wars Roleplay System, the Narrative Dice System, which is Edge of the Empire, Age of Rebellion, and Force and Destiny, which I did with Fantasy Flight Games, and then the 2D20 system that I designed for Modiphius, that is the engine that drives Mutant Chronicles, Star Trek, Fallout, and a lot of their other big-named licensed products. Yeah, recently released Dune... Yes, yes. It's really, really exciting. I knew that I was designing an engine in that particular instance that was going to be applied to other licenses. So I had to keep that in mind when I was designing the core mechanisms that it was going to be used more broadly. Whereas, I mean, we can get into it more later, but when I was designing the Star Wars system, I knew it was going to be used for Star Wars. And it wasn't later until we kind of detangled it and 
made it more accessible as the Genesis system to apply to different licenses and intellectual properties and ideas. Cool. So I guess maybe just to start, how did you get into gaming and then into, you know, system design? Because I mean, there's a lot of people that, that are game designers that maybe tweak systems here and there, but are really more setting people. But as I understand it anyway, you are very much a nuts and bolts system guy and not so much into, you know, writing the settings per se. Well, I, I definitely interested in the mechanisms because I do a lot of board game and tabletop design as well, but my heart has always been in role-playing games. In fact, when you mentioned, like, how did I get started? I played Dungeons and Dragons. I started at eight years old. My older brother was my first dungeon master, and I still vividly remember. I had a character named Cornoram who was a fighter, and I was traveling through the sewers trying to fight skeletons with a halberd, and I couldn't understand why I couldn't swing my halberd in the sewers. And then my brother showed me a a picture of what a halberd actually is. And I'm like, ah, okay, I see the disconnect. But ever since that encounter, I fell in love with Dungeons and Dragons, played that throughout grade school and high school. And what's interesting is I grew up in Southeast Wisconsin, where the heart of the Dungeons and Dragons is evil fire took over in the eighties, but that didn't dissuade me. So D and D then opened my eyes to so many other amazing role-playing games from the time you had the white wolf, kind of werewolf series and palladium had their series out as well and i started designing in college i actually sold my first game in college and that really got me interested in going you know what i i want to see if i can do this more i didn't think of it as a career at that time but it really got me thinking about games and breaking them down like the way i love baseball i absolutely love baseball and i love talking baseball strategy and i love talking about oh look the way that they're shifting their infielders and all of these things how what are they going to work together and it's kind of that same approach with games is i can't just play a game as the gamer anymore i'm also playing it as a teacher i'm trying to break it down as a designer and yeah i just love the hell out of games cool so you know some games the the dice mechanics are are much simpler than others you know most of us are familiar with the classic d20 mechanics used in various editions of dungeons and dragons and variants on those used in a lot of other games and then you have the other big one is d100 and then you have yeah. dice pools which are there's many variants of that i'm assuming on some level you have to be somewhat of a math head or math nerd just to I don't know how to say it, but there's a lot of probabilities that bounce around. And I, I don't know, is that where you start when, when you go to a dice system? Or do you look at what you want the probabilities to be for a given thing? And then how do you manipulate around that? Or uh, So it's funny because you can't see how much I'm laughing right now. But I am about as unmath head as you can be. My wife has a master's in mathematics, which just shines a light on how bad at math I am. <laughs> But I, w I will say, though, that you do need an understanding of basic probabilities, a bell curve, what the most likely results are to happen, because I, I have some cautionary tales about what happens when you don't pay attention to math. So here, here's a real quick anecdote. When I was designing the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 3rd Edition, you were building a dice pool with some special dice. One type of die, the purple one, was a difficulty die. And one face was the chaos star, like a critical failure. And I designed a high-level fire spell that you would roll four of these difficulty dice. And if all four of them came up with the Chaos Star, 
you blew yourself up. And I'm like, ha, 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 isn't that funny? It'll never happen. I just kind of did it as a lark to put on a card. And it's not long after that product gets released that I see someone post on a forum, oh man, you should have seen our game last night. Uh, we ran into all these goblins. The fire wizard said, don't worry, guys, I got this. And the next thing I know, we're standing next to a smoldering pile of cinders. I'm like, holy cow, there's a one in 2096 chance of that actually happening. But <laughs> I never considered that my sample size is always going to be smaller than the sample size of everybody else in the world playing. <laughs> so in that regard, you know, you do have to understand and respect math. You have to understand at least enough. For me, I don't go into the minutia of exact probabilities. I'm much more comfortable going. It is more likely to occur, less likely to occur, much more likely, much less likely and work around those because people end up filling in the blanks or nudging math to suit their particular needs or style anyway. So I just have to get them close. I have to get them near and then everybody plays a little bit differently. So then they'll take it from there and make it their own. Yeah. Like you said, I guess it is, you do have to think about, yes, this outcome is an edge case, but it still can happen. And the larger your sample size, someday it's going to come up. Exactly. Yeah, I, I warn my students that if it can happen, expect that it will happen and make sure that you have designed for that and you're okay with what will happen in those edge cases. Yeah, to a certain point, I guess, something like, like that and it happening in a moment like that sounds like that would be a very memorable moment for the players at the table and especially happening to you know a fire wizard or whatever. It's kind of thematic. But if it happens when... You know, and I don't, again, I, I'm not familiar with the Warhammer third edition system. So, you know, I don't know if your average, you know, mercenary would roll the same dice to, you know, swing his sword, then it doesn't really make as much sense. Oh, heck no. This was like a real weird extreme case, but it's really interesting that you have to understand because in this day and age, when people are excited about something, particularly games, what do they talk about? They talk about the stuff that went really, really exceptionally well, the natural twenties, the playing the dragon at the last minute or the things that went terribly wrong, the natural ones, the fumbles, the burning myself to a crisp. So, I mean, we really work toward that center of the bell curve when we're putting together a game, but the players actually share more stories about what's happening out at the extreme edges of either side, the exceptionally good or the exceptionally bad. So it kind of gets this distorted uh, if you weighted these outcomes, there's a much more even distribution of that weight when you take into account how impactful, how memorable, how uh, retellable those stories are. We don't relate the stories or post about the thing that went exactly as planned, where I rolled an 11 and I did an average amount of damage and I defeated that goblin in an average amount of rounds. No, no, no. We talk about the crazy one. Yeah, the, the, the either the time that you... You can't hit anything for five rounds or that, yeah, you roll a crit and, and one shot the, the Minotaur. Yes. My dying bard with his last hit point pulls out a, you know, a shard of bone from the floor next to him and throws it at the bullet. All right. You got a, a nat 20 and you'll actually do something. Oh, a nat 20. Let's see what happens, right? Like those are really, really exciting stories we love to share. Yeah. So that, I guess that's one thing 
that, you know, I understand to a certain point that, that the D20 and D100 systems, at least the traditional D20 systems, single die systems, if we want to call them that, operate on, what do you want to say, a linear plane as far as your probability where a dice pool system by its nature creates a bell curve, correct? Uh, yeah, by large part. And I would also say that a lot of the single die or single roll systems basically look at everything very, very binary. Yes or no. It did or did not occur. And there's not a lot of texture or flavor beyond that. Okay. Yeah. You know, and well, I know like to go, I know um, the Warhammer fourth edition system, which I don't own, but I've heard a decent amount about, they use a thing called degrees of success or um, success levels, which they do by virtue of, what your role is relative to what your skill is in a, that's a D 100 base. And there are various ways to do that. And so that gives you a somewhat less binary outcome or a graded outcome, I suppose, but it doesn't work like, you know, as you mentioned, the, the star Wars or the Genesis dice system, which is very much a, you know, multi-axis resolution. Yes. You know, and, and I love degrees of success because I love the magnitudes of outcomes have some depth and it makes each swing of the sword different because there are multiple things that can occur good or bad, but they still, in my mind, generally occur along one axis. It's the yes or no, I hit or I didn't. The variable now is I hit really well or didn't. It doesn't matter if I slipped in the mud or it doesn't matter if I opened up an opportunity for my buddy, like those sorts of side effects, the flavor that gets infused, the details that we talk about at the table, but might not be related to a role. Those to me are the things that I wanted to capture in the narrative dice system and make those things count. Uh, Like the, the biggest example that I give is in classic Dungeons and Dragons. I did a lot of work with third edition. Uh, you get a plus two bonus for flanking, but you might get minus two because it's dark. So it's really the same as doing it as if nothing was happening. You don't get the flavor for flaking them, and it didn't really matter that it's dark because it's just the same as a normal swing because everything cancels itself out. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to design that way. I want all of the details that we talk about. I want all the ways that you describe and set up the scene to matter up to the point that the players are willing to go. Like, There's some buy-in that you need with crazy-looking dice that use symbols instead of numbers and all these strange colors. But if they're willing to buy into that and describe something and get excited about that, I want it to be reflected in the the dice that they get to roll. No, and I like that about the narrative dice. Let's put it, just call them that for simplicity's sake. But yeah, I think and it was, for me, it was a little jarring. And it was initially off-putting when I'm like, well, narrative dice, what are narrative dice? And what do you mean? I got to buy new dice to play this game. You know, like <laughs> I've, had, I've had this bag of dice for years. I like these dice. Now, let me ask you, do you only own one set of dice? No. So you're already used to buying extra dice, and there are dice in your collection that go unused. This is very true. So I I make this, I I hear that argument so much. I've got to buy new dice. Yeah, wouldn't you buy new dice anyway? I've got like 20 sets of Chessex dice that are different colored depending on what role-playing game I'm doing. When I create a new character for a campaign, I get dice just for that character. When that character dies or retires, I retire those dice. Thank you. I've been making this argument with people for a long time. <laughs> it, it, it's it's such a valid argument that I have yet to meet somebody 
who considers themselves a role player rather than the casual person who joins every once in a while. I've yet to meet a role player who owns one set of dice and that's the only set they ever use. It's a mythical unicorn that doesn't really exist. Now, I will say I am one of those people who has my preferred dice from my collection that I use for pretty much everything. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now they're not necessarily a matched set, but I use these D6s and these, you know, D8s and these, you know, D20s, whatever. But yeah, now it was initially off putting, but once I kind of understood it a little more, I'm like, okay, now I understand and I understand the why. And that's what makes the difference. Like you said, the buy in. But I would ask, and maybe I'm jumping ahead and we don't really have a plan, so I guess it's okay. How did you come up with the idea of let's put symbols on here that represent these things instead of numbers? So that was actually part of the mandate from Christian Peterson, the CEO at Fantasy Flight Games. When I was doing third edition Warhammer, I knew Warhammer very, very well. I knew the previous editions very well. And he wanted the third edition to go in a completely different direction. So he's like, I want you for third edition to do what Fantasy Flight Games does best, and that is BIT. So I'm going to give you this AAA summer blockbuster budget to basically work on an indie-style role-play game. And I think I got a lot of things right, and I certainly got a lot of things wrong with what I did with 3rd Edition. But we took the lessons learned there, and then it was successful enough, and I believe innovative enough, that when the opportunity for Star Wars came up, Christian tapped me and he's like, it's yours. I, I want you to take these things that we liked about Warhammer and I want you to clean it up and make it feel like Star Wars. And for me, that meant people are going to be making quotes. They're going to be talking about the movies. They're going to really get into character and they're going to tell stories about this when they're done and they're going to feel like Star Wars stories. So it, it was really weird. I knew that based on the symbols and crazy dice for Warhammer, that that needed to be carried forward. I did take a closer look at math and I did break things down a little bit more into, I think there are seven axes of measurement for the different outcomes that you can have because you can have magnitudes of success or failure, then magnitudes of advantage or disadvantage, and then magnitudes of critical success or critical failure. And not all of these are mutually exclusive. And then I'm like, you know what? I don't want people to do the math. I don't want people to be able to know that they have a 75% chance of doing this. I want people to take big risks and look at a dice pool and go, ooh, that's a lot of purple dice. That's a lot of bad dice. I'm going to use the force. I'm going to spend a force point or invest a little bit more energy to, to swing things in my favor. And the only way that I could obscure that math was to use these special symbols And one of the keys is being able to put multiple symbols on one face of a die. And there are only some dice that you can do that with. I learned the hard way that you shouldn't do that with 10-sided dice because the points at the end get sanded down when they're going through a tumbler in the production process. And so all the 10-sided dice in Warhammer look like crap. It's like terrible. So we switched to a D12, which has a much nicer, larger surface area to be able to put symbols on. But yeah, I didn't want people to be able to solve it. Some people went out of their way and tried to do that anyway. And I think that that takes away some of the mystery and some of the, I don't know, science fantasy of Star Wars. The might it happen, could it happen, the possibility that 
It is the force works in mysterious ways. So that's a long rambling answer. I may or may not have actually answered your question. I kind of lost track in there in a minute. <laughs> so no, no, I that that kind of gets what I was aiming at. And I think like you're right. I think that it does achieve that. And I think that's hard for some people to let go of. You know, that that I don't understand how I'm changing my probability. And I think if I really, really wanted to I might be able to sit down and ponder out the probabilities of those dice, but I don't have that much patience. And the only thing I've kind of figured out to this point is that as far as affecting my chances of good things happening, it's better for me to add dice as opposed to upgrade from a green to a yellow. Yes. But what I will say is one of them is directly in your control and one of them is more narrative-based. So the upgrading the dice by using a force point, for example, that's something that is purely for player agency so that you feel like you've got a degree of control. Now, you can put yourself in a position where you're going to add dice, which is better, but usually that's something through either a collaboration or set dressing or something else that went beyond just you making a choice that I'm going to do what I can that's in my power, spend in a force point to increase my odds. But yeah, mathematically, more dice is better. But also, you know, upgrading to that yellow die, you can get a triumph. Can't get a triumph on any other die. Yeah, that's true. But I think what you also achieved, and I don't know if this was, you mentioned that it was sort of a goal, but is that in obscuring the mathematical probabilities, it actually, I think, creates more immersion in the story. That was a, a hope that it would. It doesn't do that for everybody, but for some, it allows them to focus on the story. And then as they look at the dice pool, they can narrate out what they were doing. So if I get a blue boost die because you helped me with this skill check and I succeed because of the symbol on that boost die, then we can narrate collaboratively like, oh, I'm so glad you helped me. Thanks, man. That was awesome. You know, you can find out and figure out where the story influenced the outcome if you want to take the time to do it. Sometimes you do just want to know, did I hit or miss? But sometimes you want all those nuances. So I find that in the games that I run, often we will have fewer dice rolls that mean more and get narrated out more. Like we, we dig more details out of them. Uh, than we would with a D20 roll. Well, I really feel that that's where that system shines in teaching an important lesson to DMs and players is that it teaches the lesson of please do not roll dice unless the result is going to be interesting in some way or another. Yep. Because that system, and from what I'm hearing you say, it was built this way, is built in a way so that it's not encouraging the menial roles. It's encouraging to be big sweeping narrative things whether it be good or bad so it, it's the scenes in the movie that you watch not the scenes that you fast forward through right i agree completely yeah i, I both me and steve have a love for that system that is like up until we had it shown to us we were like both sort of on the fence and now that we've seen it and played it a bunch it's like oh yeah i love this <laughs> this is this is my bread and butter I said, there are times where I want a little more numerical crunch, but that's just me. It's not anything wrong with, you know, it's just like, I like chocolate ice cream. I don't always want chocolate ice cream. 
No, that that's a great analogy. And I, and I get that it's a learning curve and I get that not everybody will get out of the system what they want in terms of either granularity, precision, like they want to know exactly. And, you know, sometimes they just want to chuck dice and tell stories and use the basic percentile system for something like Call of Cthulhu. I, I think Genesis could work for Call of Cthulhu, but the nice, quick, simple resolutions let you get back to the tension of something like a Call of Cthulhu. But what's interesting, too, is I think people find it surprising when I agree with them that there's a learning curve. It's like, yeah, of course it is. It's different than something you've done before. I'm hoping that the cost will be worth it, though, when you see what you're getting for that learning curve. And for some people, what they get is a greater value than what they had to spend in terms of time or attention or the number of uh, attempts. Like it might take somebody a few sessions before it all clicks. And there's usually one scene or one role where finally the light bulb goes off and they're like, hallelujah, I can see the matrix. I get it. Right. <laughs> but uh, some people that happen sooner than others. I, I will say though, that I think there are parts of the narrative dice system that aren't just those dice that people gravitate toward, like the initiative system and being able to swap out initiative slots and make that part of the collaboration as well, that people like holistically as, as a whole thing, that there's more to it than just the dice that help make it Star Wars and heroic. It's just that the dice are the engine. I think, I think, yeah, that, that probably does play a factor. I do like that initiative system. It is something that I find really interesting and have considered porting into other games, although I don't think I've done it yet. Well, and the reason I created it was I've been in a D&D session before this design where the cleric rolled a natural 20 but didn't have anyone to heal, and the rogue rolled a natural 1, so he had missed all of his opportunities to backstab people. And I'm like, well, that sucks. Why can't the cleric distract somebody, giving the rogue the opportunity to go first? I'm like, wait a second. I could do that. I'm designing a role-playing game right now. I could do whatever the heck I want with it. And so I wanted to give people that flexibility. And I find that a lot of people, even if they don't like the dice, I find a lot of people use that initiative system now in many, many other systems. They just like the flexibility that it offers and the the teamwork that it encourages. No, I, I agree. Yeah, it, that is 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 one of my favorite things there. Now, I have noticed, too, and I'm guessing, as you mentioned, you know, being that it was specifically designed initially for Star Wars and you're telling heroic stories that the dice aren't perfectly balanced. You know, the the number of good symbols on the good dice is not the same as the number of negative symbols on the bad dice. Yep. I think the best example of that is looking at the force die. There are the same number of white pips as there are dark pips but there are more sides that have dark than light. And it's all based on that quote, is the dark side stronger? No. Easier, more you know, attractive perhaps, but not more powerful. So there is this imbalance in terms of how they are presented to you, but then like the magnitude might make up for it. But I will say, because there are all these secondary rider effects, the game was designed from the premise of a standard person in a standard encounter with standard skills, so you take your generic scene, they will fail 
slightly more often than they will succeed, but with a silver lining. So they might fail, but they will set themselves up for success on their next roll, or they are going to help a buddy out. And over the course of a scene, again, a scene that's important enough to tell, then those side effects and those silver linings start to come out more and more often so that you see this sort of momentum building on the side of the player characters uh, heroically overcoming the odds. But when you strip everything else away in a mundane scenario, you should fail slightly more often than you succeed, but you're going to get some advantage along the way so that you can still spin a good story or all right i missed but i set you up for a good shot or i missed but i could take another maneuver so i'll draw my blaster uh or something like that yeah and that's achieved actually because the absence of success is failure not the presence of the failure symbol correct which sometimes that's hard to explain to people you just need one success symbol after everything else cancels out you just need one success symbol to determine yes you succeeded but there's an awful lot more than just that. So, yeah, you cannot succeed if you didn't roll at least one success symbol. Because if everything else cancels out and you're at zero, even if there aren't any failure symbols out there and it's all just blanks, you still fail, but it's probably not that severely. And what I like about that is if the success symbols didn't come up on your good dice, then guess what did? Advantage symbols. <laughs> Right. So if you don't succeed, there is a greater chance that all of these other good things are going to happen. And those usually have multiple icons on those sides. So how much work did it take to, to figure out how many of what symbols to put on which sides? I'm guessing that was a, a balancing act that took a bit of dancing. So I spent a lot of time on the dice. And I had spreadsheets and I went to people like Kevin Wilson, who's a phenomenal designer. A lot of people might know him by name for doing stuff like Descent and Arkham Horror. He is fantastic with math. And so I would go to him sometimes and just get his advice or feedback on different iterations. Made a lot of stickered dice. So many stickered dice. Eventually somebody helped me with a, a dice roller, but it took a lot of time. However, I will say that at the end, the math said we should do one thing, but my gut said, no, do this instead. And I went with my gut. So ultimately, like I do as a dungeon master, I went with my gut and did what I thought would make for a better story, not what mathematically looked like the better choice based on feedback I was getting from other people. And some people are like shocked by that. This was a professional game. Why didn't you go with the math? Well, because there's no golden formula for this. There is no absolute right or absolute wrong. So while I did do a lot of math and a lot of research, and this was one of the most important things I've worked on in my life, I definitely did my due diligence and, and worked hard on it. But it's still kind of fun and inspiring to me that at the end of the day, it was some gut decisions and instinct that I went with. And the system is successful. So it kind of validates that, you know what? You're pretty good at what you do. Not to get cocky, but I do think that I designed a system that it was the perfect time and the perfect place and the perfect set of circumstances that at that moment in time, I was able to do something that nobody else was able to do. Now, let me let me step that back. I had some amazing people working with me like Daniel Lovett Clark 
and Corey Kinezka and other designers obviously helped along the way. But there were certain parts of this that were 100% mine that I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad that worked out. Yeah, it is weird how stuff like works like that sometimes. And maybe to shift gears slightly here, the other thing that I've only recently become aware of it in most cases, but it's something that features in both the narrative dice and the 2D20 system, I'm assuming in your um, your Warhammer design as well, but that's the use of, of meta currencies, which I think add a lot to the games because, like you mentioned, it gives direct player leverage or GM leverage outside of just, well, let's roll and see what happens. I'm glad you brought that up. And I like the way that you phrase that as meta currency. I'm really, really big on player agency and that the players have a great deal of influence over the outcome. And so even if it's a bad die roll, they feel like they put themselves in that situation or I didn't try hard enough to make it more favorable or yeah, sometimes the dice just hate you. But there are, you know, the the force points that you can spend. But my favorite one is actually obligation. The the system in Edge of the Empire where it's the credit card you never want to have to use. That's how I try to describe it to people. Is you've got the potential to do just about anything you want. Oh, do you need to buy a YT light freighter? Yes. That's fine if you're willing to become an indentured servant to the huts. Oh, let me rethink that. Oh, are you completely out of uh, this sort of resource that you desperately need to be able to cure the disease ravaging this planet? Sure, if you're willing to become a wanted person in the sector. So there are these things that the players can do that give both the player and the GM some insight into what their characters are like. And as the GM, every time you make a decision to take on obligation or every time you use a force point, you're giving me a little bit more information. I'm going to take another note on something that might be a hook that I can pull your character into later. Some sort of intrigue or some sort of storyline or some sort of plot that is going to appeal to you because you've shown me through your actions now with this meta currency that it's like looking at receipts. What you're buying with that currency is giving me important information about you and your preferences. So I can become a better DM by providing you with those currencies. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in in that specific light that you just mentioned, but I've said, you know, one of the tips that, that I always tell, you know, we're talking about GMing tips is listen to your players. And if you pay attention, they'll tell you what they're interested in. But you figured out a way to do that and build it into the system. Yes. Yeah. That That's my goal with it. Now, whether people use it that way, um, but... I, I really do think it's valuable for the DM to listen to the players to the point that one of the ways people should be able to play Star Wars, and I think it works out very well, is you have a general outline for what you might want to do. Like, I've got a specific scenario that I use when I'm teaching the game to people, and it's based around three basic concepts or ideas. But I don't know where the story is going to go. I don't know who the villain is. I listen to the players, and I just keep telling them yes. Oh, it must be that security guard that we passed earlier. He seems suspicious. Yes. And you notice, so it's very, very improv from my point of view as a DM. I wonder why this installation is empty. I bet the Imperials came through and scoured it out for resources. Yes. That might not have been what was in my mind originally, but I'm like, damn, you go. I love that idea. Right. And, and I just try to keep on encouraging them to come up with interesting, creative interpretations of 
the scene I've laid out for them. Yeah. And the other thing too, that I like specifically with the force points or the story points or whatever, you know, you call them, be it star Wars, Genesis, whatever, is that it gives you as a GM a way to introduce things without it just being the hand of God GM fiat thing. Yeah. And it's an exchange because as the GM, would you spend that point? Now the players have it to spend and vice versa. So at some point, you know, it becomes if the players are spending all the points, now the GM has all them all. And now the players are going, Oh, well, well okay. Oh, good. yeah. What bad stuff's coming around the corner now? Cause they have all those points. And I know that, you know, in the, in the Conan edition of um, the 2d 20 system, I believe the, the one meta currency is called doom, which is of course ominous. And what's so great about that is even if the points aren't being used, they have an effect at the table. If it's all on the GM side, the players have this sense of tension. If it's all on the player side, then the GM is kind of rethinking some of the decisions or what am I going to do with the few that I have? But to back it up just a little bit, when you were talking about the, the kind of power that it gives the players, I like to think that each dice roll is a contract. Each dice roll is a handshake between the players and the GM saying, all right, we're fine with whatever happens from this point on. We, we've come to an agreement. So in a lot of role-playing games, you might be, let, let's say that you walk into a room and you're on the second floor balcony tier and you see a bad guy running away and you're like, all right, I'm going to run across, jump off, swing from the chandelier and tackle that guy. And most of the time the DM would say, no, are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. Whereas I would want to say, that sounds awesome. However, I'm going to increase the difficulty like this. And if a critical failure comes up, you break your ankle. And if the player says, all right, and picks up those dice, we've got a contract. And I am fine if he succeeds and he has to bite it and accept it if he fails. Now, maybe this is a good time to spend a story point. Maybe this is a good time to rethink his tactics. <laughs> but we'll talk it out and we come to this kind of arrangement of, yeah, we're both curious to see what happens next in the story. And I'm fine if your ending occurs and you're fine if my ending occurs. Yeah, that's a, and I think that's that's something that you typically don't have in, in the more binary designs. But like you said, for some games like Call of Cthulhu, I, the dice are are used differently, I guess is the best way to say it a lot of cases. You know, it's not the same thing as, as, as Star Wars. You know, yes, they are more binary, but it so much more of the role play in Call of Cthulhu is about the stuff that you don't roll for. And I don't, I know that sounds weird to say because we were just talking about how you don't want to roll unless, you know, the, the result has an interesting impact. But I, I know what I'm thinking. I don't, I, I can't articulate it well tonight for some reason, though. So, so for me, for Call of Cthulhu, there's like a, a wealth or a credit rating skill that you can roll to see if you can afford something. But for me, a lot of times it's like, a, I've got an 80, I'm wealthy, I'm well off, I kind of know the sorts of things that I can do, the sort of social tier I belong to. We don't need to roll for that kind of stuff. Mine is higher than yours, I'm in a higher class than you. Like, we could just talk and narrate that out, it doesn't necessarily need a die roll. And there are other things, too, where for something like Call of Cthulhu, uh, and this is where I think Gumshoe and Trail of Cthulhu work so well, is if there's a clue, somebody needs to find it. So it's just a matter of, theoretically, everybody rolling until somebody gets a success. 
or just giving that clue to the person with the highest skill in that particular category, right? So whether it's investigation or ancient history or whatever, this game gets a lot more interesting when somebody gets that clue. So you might as well assume that someone at the table is going to do it. Uh, let's just use this number to determine who. We don't necessarily need to roll it. Uh, we can narrate out how it resolves. But yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's hard to put your finger on exactly how, but the dice are used differently. And Call of Cthulhu is kind of its own thing where it operates differently than just about any other game because you already give up the idea of trying to protect your character. Things get better when your character's at risk and goes crazy. Whereas in D&D, you're much more protective of your character and you want to see them succeed in advance. And advancement in Cthulhu just means that you survived all the way to the sanitarium. Not that you'd become this big hero, right? Yeah, no, that's a good point. But is it also goes to a concept and I think it's mentioned in the Genesis and Star Wars rules, but the first place I remember seeing it was in um, Delta Green, the standalone game. Mm -hmm. the, the concept of presumed competence with characters. Yeah. Where, you know, like you mentioned, you have a, a 60 or an 80 in this skill. You can do this thing. We don't have to make every character roll to open the door because it's not interesting if you can't open the door. It might be funny if everyone fails the role to open the door, but in reality, it's breaking the immersion of the story. Yeah, and there are a couple of games that have done that. I think Dark Conspiracy is one that did that as well. Like Based on your, your class or your archetype, it's just assumed that you have access to these things and you can do these things. So you don't necessarily need to write out an entire inventory list. If I am a military person who has the rank of corporal, there are just some things that I'm going to have access to that I shouldn't need to roll for, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you do assume a certain level of competency. Yes, I'm good with a firearm. Let's only make it matter if we need to determine how good. But I, I know how to hold a gun, right? Uh, or whatever other core competency. Are you the mechanic in the uh, motor pool? Then, you know, unless it's something really dire, shouldn't have to roll to see if you can replace a flat tire. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there's nothing to be gained from rolling that out. I don't think. No, you know, unless if the flat tire was patched together and it's in a hail of gunfire while monsters are chasing you and one of your arms is in a sling, like then maybe I could see it being interesting, but otherwise if it's standard stuff, let it go. Let's, let's montage that. <laughs> and get back to the the story points that really really matter the, the ones that everyone leans forward to and listens to even when it's not their action or their character right like there's a certain body language of storytelling that occurs when we get to the more interesting parts those are the ones that i want to narrate more and roll about and discuss and dissect not the ones where bob over here is yawning and joe is looking at his phone right yeah I find the narrative dice system fascinating. And, and I, unfortunately I read a little bit of a 2d 20 starter the other day to get just kind of a base understanding of it, but it, it feels like it feels like the narrative dice system light, doesn't it? Well, actually let me back up for a second okay, and, and say something that pretty good friends with GM Hooley, who I know, you know, I told him that in some ways to me, it feels like, the narrative dice is a mechanized, a, a much more 
complexly mechanized version of the fake game. And I don't know if that was an inspiration in any way, if that was a goal, but it feels like what Genesis and, and the narrative dice do is quantify so many of the things that fate just wants you to put down as an aspect or whatever and rely on you as as the player or GM to remember to account for as opposed to putting it down in mechanics. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people ask me about the inspirations for that and Fudge was one of them, you know, which I believe Fudge is the forebear, the spiritual ancestor to fate. I don't quote me on that, but I believe you're correct. But Fudge was an influence. Sorcerer by Ron Edwards was an influence because uh, that was a big indie game and he was running Forge.net. So we had a lot of really interesting discussions at that time. Um, but also Jason Morningstar's fiasco, right? Like there's a certain surrender to the game idea that you give in a game like fiasco and you just go with it to be able to tell these stories rather than clinging so tightly to what's written down on your character sheet it's a little bit more than just a suspension of disbelief it's almost like a suspension of control in order to tell these really cool stories i'm willing to let you have a little bit of control of my character as well you can pull me into the story because you rolled dice that you got because I helped or because I'm there, right? Like in, in some games, if you say, all right, then uh, Matt flanks him, it'd be like, no, I don't, I'm over here. But if you're assisting me and I roll a die and it makes sense, I can kind of look over at you and say, and you flank me, right? Uh, or you flank it for me, right? And you nod and boom, we got an agreement and we're there. So there's like this, I don't know, it, it's hard to explain. So there were a lot of indie games, um, Dogs in the Vineyard, Inspectors by Jared Sorensen. Another one of my favorites is Best Friends by Greg S. Hutton, which is basically about high school girls and the petty cliques they belong to. And character creation is all about saying who you're prettier than or who you're smarter than or who you're wealthier than. And if you say it, it's true in the game. So if I'm prettier than Steve during character creation, you cannot have a pretty stat that's higher than mine. And, and there's just something brilliant about the simplicity of some of these indie systems. Now, I've run into a lot of indie systems where there's one thing about that game that really stands out. And then the rest of it seems rather mundane because all the inspiration got like burnt up with that one idea. And I burned myself out designing this game. I, I literally had a heart attack that put me in the hospital for three months over the course of the design of this game. And it took everything out of me to put this together. So yeah, there's this aspect of surrender to the system. I don't know how else to describe it beyond that. No, I, I get what you're saying, though, because I, I've told people before, I, to play with the narrative dice requires you to think differently towards the game. And it's hard to explain in in concrete terms, but you do approach the game differently, or at least I do, than than if I'm playing a quote-unquote more traditional system. I think small press indie games, like small press indie games, ask you to reevaluate what it means to be a role-play game. What is a role-play game? And I tried to inject a little bit of that with Warhammer 3rd Edition, which eventually became narrative, which eventually became Genesis. And as an aside, the 2D20 system, I was specifically approached by Chris Birch at Modifia saying, 
give us the closest thing you can to the Star Wars system using only 20-sided and six-sided dice. And I'm like, huh, that's pretty funny. He's like, uh, no, really. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, because what little I've read of the 2D20 system, I can very much see going for the multi-axis and, you know, the degrees of success. And I, I was curious, you know, were there directives there to like, look, we want something like that, but can you do it with numbers on the dice? Yeah, and and that is exactly it. Right. Like I'm, I am paraphrasing Chris, but it basically came down to give us the closest thing you can to the, the narrative dice system with D twenties and D sixes. Cause we can package and produce and sell those. And then we don't need to do anything else. Our player base will be happy. Uh, the, the big controversy there was creating a roll under system with 20 sided dice where people thought it was insane. You obviously have to do a roll high system with 20 sided dice because you only have 20 outcomes. I'm like, then you're looking at the die wrong. If you think you've only got 20 outcomes there, but like there's this supplemental system called momentum, which tried to capture the idea of advantage where basically if you don't succeed, there's this pool that starts building that goes around to the next player. And if they don't succeed, then the pool grows a little bit bigger. I, I'm generalizing, but yeah, I tried to adapt some of the concepts and see how can I get this idea across using only D20s and D6s. Do we need some meta currencies like you mentioned? There are some in the, the 2D20 system, but it was a lot of fun using those design restrictions going, what is it about the Star Wars system that makes it special? And if I could only choose three or four things that I could port over, what would they be? Like there was a lot of, of planning before I actually went into the design of trying to figure out exactly what it was that he wanted me to deliver. And then I could start looking at mechanically how to do it. Yeah. Now, the other thing, 2D20, I'm going to call it kind of a misnomer for the system. Because it's not just two D20s. It's multiple D20s. Yeah, I would have loved XD20 instead of 2D20 or ND20. Because, <laughs> yeah, so go ahead and talk about that a little bit further. Because most people, when they say 2D20, they just assume, oh, so I'm, I'm always rolling two 20-sided dice. But that's not the case. Yeah, by the name in my head, it went... So basically, we're always rolling at advantage slash disadvantage to bar the D&D terminology. But in, in what reading I've been able to do on it, that's not the case. You actually roll various amounts of D20 together. And then it is like you, you mentioned, it's a roll under system. So you're trying to roll under the, okay, I'm trying to remember the terms. You're trying to roll under the target number and then successes is the difficulty. Correct. And what's interesting, yeah. So if the difficulty is two, that means that you need to generate two successes. Right. And a single D20 can generate zero, one, or two successes under most circumstances. Um, zero if you fail your check, one if you pass the test, two if you critically pass the test. So with two 20-sided dice, you're going to get anywhere from zero to four successes. Well, if you're doing a difficulty five task, you're going to want to throw some extra D20s in there. And so there are these currencies and there are these skills and abilities that allow you to roll more dice or to re-roll dice. The big thing there that I think is perhaps the thing that I think is most novel that a lot of people overlook is the skill system. 
where when you train a skill, you've got two levels of proficiency. You've got your general knowledge, which is the value that you add to your characteristics. So I might have a general knowledge of automotives of four, plus my intelligence of four, I need to roll an eight or less to generate a success. But then I have my expertise, and the expertise sets the crit range. So if I only have an expertise of one, I'm only going to generate two successes on a natural one. If I've got an expertise of three, that means on a one, two, or three, I get a critical success. And so that to me was one of the ways to unlock axes of measurement. Are you pretty good at something because of your general trivia knowledge, or have you focused and dedicated your life to this craft? So it's, are you wide or are you deep, or have you specialized to the point where you're both? Well, and I think what you've achieved with that is you've still managed to obscure the statistics of it. Like it's a little easier to figure out the probabilities partially because we're using numbers and I can know that, okay, I've got, you know, a 15% chance to roll three or under on any one given die. But unless you're just a very exceptional math person, putting that together with, well, I've got 15% chance on each of these die and, and adding the probabilities together, I could look it up and figure it out, but I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's like, if I crit on a one through three, but I can still succeed up to eight, then what is the chance of generating three or more successes on four dice? Like you can create the algebraic expression for that and they can get pretty complex pretty quick. So I wasn't able to hide the math perfectly because we're using number dice and people can usually count in increments of five pretty easily. But it does start to get more complex to the point where you're like, I like my odds or I want another D20 in there to play it safe. Well, it's it's like you brought up with designing a narrative system that you want people to go, this makes it better, not this makes it this much better. Right, right. This is better. This is a lot better. Not necessarily this is 18 and a half percent better. Yeah. And look, there are people who get their jollies playing games that way and good for them. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no quarrel with them. I think it's interesting when they get mad at me for the way I designed my game. I'm like, well, then just don't play this game. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I think, I know you're a game designer, so you can obviously speak to it much better than I can. But the, the idea that to hear, you know, you're fine with people going, I don't like your game. And you just go, yeah, well, then go enjoy something else. And I'll say it's a lot easier to do with role-play games than board games. It it hurts when people don't like my board games, but with role-play games, because there's always so much that's freewheeling and open-minded and loosey-goosey and house-ruled, like, it, it doesn't bother me. There are so many great systems out there for you to tell stories with. Whereas with a board game, everything that I'm trying to do is in that box. So I either got it right or I didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now that's that's a, a point that I hadn't even thought of because I'm I'll play board games I'm not massively into them but I guess is it fair to say that when you're designing a board game you're going for a more curated experience as opposed to with a role playing game where you're trying to create a set of tools for people to create their own experience absolutely absolutely the the biggest difference is whether or not there's a license involved, because then that adds another layer of verification and like I'm letting them tell their own stories, but I still have to make sure they're Star Wars stories. 
uh, where with a board game, if I'm doing something generic and it's sci-fi, I've got more latitude than if I'm doing it and it's Warhammer 40k or it's Star Wars, right? There, there are extra set of guidelines and guardrails there. But when I'm designing a board game, I am trying to design and deliver a very, very specific experience. It's going to be an experience that hopefully is a little bit different every time you play, but it's still an experience using these bits in this combination, in these ways, and you're going to generally be making these sorts of decisions along the way. And sometimes I feel like I get it right, and sometimes I blow it completely. So sort of ask a question, did you find any difficulty, because you had worked previously on building systems for specific titles, did you have any difficulty really building the 2D20 system? Because it it sounded like you had the upfront knowledge that it was going to be a uh, a sort of a generic system used for multiple different games. Yep. So it was interesting that I thought that would give me more freedom, you know, because it's not bound to one particular IP. But I actually found it really challenging because I was designing not only the generic system at the time, but it was being used to fuel Mutant Chronicles. That was the first game in the 2D20 series. So I knew that I needed a system that could support and play Mutant Chronicles, but I also had to have areas where you could pull back from that because not everything is diesel punk. And maybe you could bump up this thing to tell more of the Hyborian tales of Conan or bump up this thing to be able to tell Fallout stories. Like, I didn't know at the time that it was going to be used for those properties, but just knowing that anything's on the table. All right. It might be used for sci-fi. It might be used for fantasy. It might be used for cyberpunk. What what does that mean? What mechanics might I need to scale back or where might I need to put an opening for a design hook, a mechanic that they can add on top of this? So it was not as easy as I thought it was going to be. It was a lot more challenging because I was designing both the generic and an applied version of the system at the same time. I guess it's kind of like when doing the system where you had a defined IP already, you had a target where with the base of the 2D20, you were like, well, I have to make it work for this, but I've also got to make it work for a whole bunch of these question marks over here. It was a target with a lot of other spinning targets surrounding it that are all going fast enough that I can't quite see them. <laughs> I know they're there, and I know that there's a bullseye on each one, but I don't know <laughs> when it's going to slow down enough. <laughs> so fortunately for me, once I delivered Mutant Chronicles and the core of the 2D20 system, I mean, Modifius has access to so many amazing designers that there are people that just know Star Trek and what's going to make a Star Trek story better than me. And obviously people pulled in for the individual IPs. Like I would have loved to have worked on Fallout. That's one of my favorite like bucket list properties that I'd like to work on. But there were other people that by that point had worked on so many other 2D20 systems and know that IP that they could specialize and tailor it to that experience better than I could going back to my original idea and going back to relearning Mutant Chronicles then getting caught up with the current state of it with other adjustments that they've made, right? Like it, it worked out so much better that I was no longer involved in it. Once I turned over the first one, as strange as that sounds. No, it makes sense in a way because so to speak, you you've taken people who understand what you created and understand the IP they're applying it to. It's um, 
had a conversation with uh, someone from a, a small design company, Studio 404, that does stuff primarily for, for Genesis. And I think they do a little bit for one of the green Ronin systems as well. But what they were telling me was that, in, in their opinion, the first thing you need to develop a game is to be an expert in some aspect of it. And so if you've got someone who understands the mechanics and is an expert in the lore, now they can probably fiddle with the mechanics just a little bit and make it do this thing that you need for the lore. Well, it, there's a lot more catching up to do if you are brought back to continue working on a system that you did. For example, I'll, I'll go to X-Wing, X-Wing Miniatures tabletop game. I designed the core set. I designed the first wave. So I knew that we were going to have Y-Wings. I knew we were going to have A-Wings. I knew we were going to have TIEs and TIE Interceptors. And then I knew that eventually it would need to support B-Wings. Eventually it would need to support the Millennium Falcon. But I didn't design those. So I had to design the ones that were right in front of me, but I had to design them at a level where I knew that things could go up or down from there. Things could get bigger or smaller, more or less powerful. And by the time they designed waves three, four, five, if they would have brought me back in to try to design ships for like wave six, they would have been messed up because my frame of reference was still my core goal with the first few waves and the experience that they delivered not the experience that has built up based on hundreds of thousands of people playing it over years of work and tournament play, like all of these things. I built it to be this modular, flexible system. And thankfully, a lot of smart people uh, like James Niffen and Alex Davey were put in, in charge of it, and they were able to take those building blocks and improve on it to uh, deliver a kick-ass experience. But I would not have been able to push it that far right like it's weird that sometimes i am better off when somebody else takes over and takes my baby and raises it for me (laughs) yeah to sort of platform off that basically from what i'm understanding you're saying to come back at a later point like that would have taken almost relearning the system entirely like even though you started it you would have had to relearn what it actually became and yeah, I can understand where that could be really daunting and difficult because, yeah, not that I have any game design experience, but. Well, like if you wanted to create something new for Genesis right now, you could do it with blinders on and only look at the Genesis source book and what you're creating. But people have created some fantastic rules around vehicles, some fantastic rules about new weapons, some fantastic rules about magic. So are you going to ignore the depth of content that is out there and only go with what you have, like the, the few tools that you do have, or are you going to kind of open up and embrace all that and say, that can also influence my decision-making. Maybe I can use a little bit of this as well, which is great, but now you've got more information that you have to read, more things that you have to take into account, more decisions that you have to make about what's going to make the final cut and what's not. Like, I'm amazed at how far Genesis has come, and I'm amazed at what people have done with it. There's a ton of content out there that I would have never created because it's either a topic or a license that didn't interest me, or it's a level of detail that I didn't feel was necessary, or it's just not the sort of thing that as a GM, I would look at 
I would just instead go with my gut. Now, it doesn't mean it is not excellent material. Uh, there is some fantastic stuff out there. It's just that I literally could not have come up with it <laughs> because that's not my wiring. So that makes sense. Think of all the Lego sets that you've ever owned. And every time you finish building what that Lego set was for, you dump it into a box. And then the next time you get a Lego set and you've played with it, you dump it into the box. And eventually you have this huge box filled with Lego pieces from so many different things. You've got your Lord of the Rings and your Star Wars and your spaceship and your DC universe, and they're all mixed together. It would be hard for me to both a recreate the original thing that they were made for like to find those parts and to put them together in that way but b i cannot possibly envision all the different ways that you might build something cool out of that we might both build a spaceship out of it and they're both cool ships but we build them in such different ways and we use different pieces and we express that very very differently so I've got building blocks and not even I know what all the different shapes look like. And I don't even know how big all the pieces are because people have found ways to put them together in ways that I couldn't even fathom until I saw it in front of me going, oh my goodness, that is really, really cool. I couldn't have built that. That's got to be a neat perspective to to take, to or to be able to take, right? To, to, like you said, so to speak, look at this thing that you created and then go, wow, look at all this other cool stuff that people have done with it. It's both very rewarding, but also very intimidating. Because sometimes I'll look at that and instead of being uplifting, I don't know, it's that imposter syndrome that gets inside your head and says, you're not really as good as you think you are. And it's just like, well, you couldn't have come up with that idea. Oh, all right. When really every one of those should be an opportunity for me to say, you know what? I brought something into the hobby that other people enjoy. And if they only ever enjoy it the way that I made it, great. But if they enjoy it enough to invest their own time and energy and sometimes money and resources into it, you should be excited and just be happy for them because they're obviously happy for you. They might not even know that you're the person behind it, but just the fact that they're playing it is this tacit approval of your your work, right? And so there's some gratification with that. Yeah, I, I can see both sides of what you're saying there. It, it... That's that's pretty powerful. I am very, very proud of the work that I do, and you can tell that I'm really enthusiastic and excited about it. But I do want to point out that as excited as I get about this, I was always surrounded by an amazing support system. Whether it was marketing, whether it was graphic design and layout, whether it was being able to turn around to a designer like a Kevin Wilson or an Eric Lang or Corey Kineska and ask them questions. So while I I still say I, 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 me, me, me a lot, people need to understand that very little is designed in a vacuum, like outside of things like Gloomhaven and and stuff like that, like everything requires so much input and so much feedback. And there are probably ideas entwined with mine that I don't even remember the source of their inspiration. So it's hard for me to go back and credit everybody. But I know that this could not have been created without me. But I also know that it couldn't have been created without the awesome people who inspired and helped. Well, that's cool. And uh, yeah, I I think that's a thing that game design, and, and I think of it more in the context of strictly RPGs, but it it is such a... It, it's a weird thing too, because like we mentioned before, you know, it's, it's sort of like writing a cookbook, except you're just telling people 
these things taste good, but how you put them together is up to you. How much sugar are you going to use? How much baking powder? Like you can play around with the recipe and come up with your own special variant. Use M&Ms instead of chocolate chips, right? Like there's a certain, I can't follow a recipe to save my life. So talking about a a cookbook probably isn't the best (laughs) analogy for me to take, but you're giving people really, you're just giving people a different way to play (laughs) make-believe. Steve, what? Uh, not to interrupt, but what's that famous quote your wife has? Yes, I was just thinking the same thing. My wife will always look at me. I'll tell her, hey, I want to buy this, whatever. She goes, Why do you need more books to play pretend? <laughs> uh, yeah, she says I, it lovingly, but. <laughs> so I have about 4,000 board games and about 3,500 role-playing games in my collection. And every time I buy a new one, I get an eye roll. And then the support of, I know this is your hobby and I love you, but it's really like, I probably have 200 to 300 role-play games that are all set in a sword and sorcery, fairly forgotten realms style of setting. Do I really need them? Absolutely not. I can make believe in plenty of ways. Do I really want them? Absolutely. Am I going to play them all? (laughs) Never. But there's something really rewarding about seeing what other people have done, how other people have interpreted make-believe. And to be honest, I'm always looking for ideas that I can steal slash be inspired by. Well, right. And I think that's the thing, right? You know, like, I'm going to guess that game design in some ways is much like technology and that it expands exponentially. You know, that, that someone has this idea and then you pick it up and somebody else picks it up and you know, go, you know, five different directions off this one little thing that you picked up out of, you know, dogs in the vineyard, but that inspires five different things. And then this other aspect, you know what I mean? And then those things, five things and, and and so on. There are a couple of games that I think threw a big rock into the lake and created lots of ripples and Dungeons and Dragons is the number one game that I think has inspired other games. After that, it would probably be Magic the Gathering. And then you start to get into Euro games like Settlers of Catan when Dominion came out and this deck building thing was an idea and a concept. Suddenly you saw dozens of deck builders once uh, Risk Legacy came out and people are like, wait, you can change your game and add stickers and make it different as you play. Then you started to see a whole bunch of legacy games. But there are, yeah, a handful of these games that once you've put it out there, you don't know what other dominoes are going to fall. You don't know how big a splash it's going to make. You don't know if other people are going to throw rocks in there as well. But like, I, I don't know if you can think back to when magic, the gathering came out. I think it was 93, 92, 93, but within a year, there were probably 50 other quote mark collectible card games that came in booster pack formats. Mm-hmm. Uh, the industry was forever changed after that. So so hopefully you can see my greater point is that there are these games that have these seismic impact, but if a game has an, enough of an impact that it changes one person's mindset or it brings one new idea into the industry or it inspires one person to take up the hobby, then it's still valuable. It, it's still a cool thing. It's just, it it's not always the magnitude that matters, but I think the magnitude of some of these things tends to overshadow the coolness of some of these smaller things. 
yeah, no, I get exactly what you're saying. It's like, I've, I've heard the same analogy made in music that, you know, if you count up all the bands that claim to be inspired by the velvet underground, it adds up to more albums than they ever sold. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a heavy metal freak. I, I love the thrash metal. So for me, the big four Slayer, Megadeth, Metallica, Anthrax, and you think about all the people that say that they were inspired by them and it's just becomes eventually everything. In, in fact, for one of my class projects, they get to design a game, but it has to be around one of my favorite albums. So this year they got Exodus's Fabulous Disaster, Sepultura's Arise, and one of Flotsam and Jetsam's albums. Now it's escaping me. But like <laughs> every year I get to pick three more of my favorite heavy metal albums and share it with my students. <laughs> I will cool. also say, speaking of, whenever I am designing, I am always listening to music. I need to shut everything else out and get into the zone. And the zone is either going to be soundtracks like MCU or World of Warcraft soundtracks, or more likely it's going to be blaring heavy metal. You can hear it throughout the house or I've got my headphones on. <laughs> but everybody needs that thing that gets them in the zone. I've heard Rob Schwab does things much the same way. <laughs> I know a lot of people do. Like they, they need something that puts them in the right mindset, lets them get creative, loosen up. It's like putting on a comfortable pair of slippers. The more comfortable you are, the easier it is to come up with ideas. And for me, heavy metal is one of those things that actually soothes me. You know, a lot of people don't understand how it can do that, but it helps put me in the right frame of mind. It helps me vent and get all of the things that I don't want clouding my head out of the way so that I can focus on game design. I can focus on mechanics. I can play around with ideas that otherwise I might be like boxed out by. Everybody needs that thing, man. We've really gotten away from game and game design <laughs> here, but actually this is all tying back to it, right? I'm going to make this unbelievable segue and get us back to game design. So everybody's tastes are different, just like they're different in music. They're different in gaming. One of the things that I think is fantastic is just like, I think there is music out there for everybody. I think there is a game out there for everybody. And someone who says that they don't like role-playing, I just think that they haven't found the, either the right group or the right game. Like my wife, who never had played D&D before, never understood it while I've been playing since I was eight. When fourth edition D&D came out, it got a lot of crap from a lot of people, but its formulaic mathematical nature was perfect for my wife. And I finally got her to play in a more than year-long D&D campaign, which I thought was never going to happen. It's the only time that she's played a role-playing game before, and we got a lot of mileage out of that. And so even though some people really diss on 4th edition, it, it will always be important to me because I got to get through to my wife. For both of my boys, 5th edition D&D is where it's at. That is their entry into D&D rather than like the white box or the Errol Otis red cover for me. So everybody's got a different entry point. And one of the things that makes me happiest and sometimes brings me to tears is sometimes my game is the entry point. Sometimes it's my game that was what got them to like role-playing games. And, and that blows my mind. Um, like I've had some people come to me at conventions or send me emails saying that, uh, this is the game that reconnected my college group or that edge of the empire is the first game that I showed my kid. I don't know what it is, but there are some people, both of my kids were on the autism spectrum 
And I've had people who've mentioned that the the shapes and the colors made it easier for them to process than just a bunch of numbers. I have no idea if there is anything behind that, but to receive an email saying, oh, I was able to connect with my kid in a special way because of something that you were involved with, poof, that is that is pretty powerful. Yeah, I can imagine that would be. That's damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I we could I have a feeling that we could talk for till a long time, (laughs) but uh, we probably should wrap up. Although uh, I would like to say, you know, if if, uh, we ever get another chance, we'd love to talk to you again about uh, more of whatever comes up, but well, we'll just have you on. We'll we'll have a variety episode and we'll bring you on just to talk metal because I just want to pick your brain on, on music at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to come back and, if nothing else, whether people like my games or not, what I hope they would get from seeing me, meeting me, hearing me is that I love games and no matter what I'm working on, that I put my heart and soul into it. It, it may not be theirs, may not be something that, that they like, but damn it, I, I did my best. Cool. You got anything more to add, Steve? No, um, I was just going to say, I, I, I feel that the passion and, and the love you have for it does definitely come across. And Yes. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So I guess two things. One, do you have anything currently out that you really want to plug? And and two, do you have any, you know, like I, I know you're on social media. Obviously, that's where I found you. But, you know, do you want to give out people want to follow you or or whatever, anything like that? So there are two games that that came out recently that I'm really excited about. One is called Three Years of War. It's about the worst three years of the 30 Years War. Basically, it's a card game about only bad things happening, and you're trying to make the best out of an increasingly dire situation. So it's the most fun people have had losing. That's one of the quotes that I got from a a player. Yeah, I, I came in last place, but it's the most fun I ever had losing. And then I also got to do if people are familiar with the unlock series of escape room card decks it's kind of like uh, an escape room in a deck Mm -hmm. i worked with the base cowboys publisher last year and did the star wars version so i designed the star wars unlock series of puzzle games with them and other than that uh i get to work with ravensburger on a project i can't really talk about what it is but i always love it when i get to work with a new publisher and then i found out that one of the people that i'm working with at ravensburger is one of the people that i first met and worked with at WizKids like 16 17 years ago so it's really cool how connected the uh, industry is as for media if people want to find or get in touch with me look for my painted thumbs i've always got my thumbnails painted and i'm always wearing a hawaiian shirt no matter where i am always wearing cargo shorts you can spot me at conventions or you can go to my website, which is paintedthumb.com. And from there, feel free to drop me an email. Uh, I'm also on Board Game Geek a lot. So, yeah, if you're interested and love games or want to drop a note, then please visit paintedthumb.com. I also put my convention appearance schedule there once we're back to being able to go places in physical space. But, yeah, that's kind of what's going on. Very, very cool. I'll be honest, I was unaware that you had such a design history with board games and card games and so forth. I was only aware of your, your role-playing game background. So I learned a lot just in that, let alone all the knowledge and mind-blowing things that you've shared tonight. 
Well, you know what? Let's give some props to other people too, because I hear that you like to talk a little bit about some games that other people have made. Oh, yes. Steve, do you think he's talking about Game of the Week? I think he's talking about Game of the Week. I am talking about Game of the Week. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what order are we doing this in this week? I don't know. I'll go last. Okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> so that makes it a little bit easier. Do you want to go first, Steve? I can. I have one picked out. Okay, go for it. So it, it's no secret to anyone that listened to this show that I'm a bit of a, a, a Cthulhu Games fan, and I found one. It's called Apoxulu. It's literally like if you started to spell Apocalypse and then at the C, you just continued spelling Cthulhu. And what this is, is it's a game based around playing in a world that happened after a Lovecraftian apocalypse happened. And so it's not so much a setting as it is guidelines to make settings based off of, you know, this elder god succeeded in being summoned or or whatever. But mechanically, it looks like, and I'm basing this off of the quick starter, which I downloaded and and skimmed through. I didn't read it completely, but it looks to be very similar mechanically to Delta Green. And everyone knows that I love those mechanics. Touch of the the classic D100 Call of Cthulhu in there, too. But yeah, it just looks it looks fun. If you want only the PDF, it's about 23 bucks on drive through. They have print on demand all the way up through hardcover. Uh, There is a free quick start. If you just want to dip your toes in it, which is about 70 pages, has pre-gens, base rules, a scenario, actually some some suggestions on, let's say you play that scenario and you want to keep going with it. There's some, well, you could go this way, this way, and this way, you know. So, like I said, the the, the quick start guide is, is free, and it's, like I said, I think it's a 70-page document, so it has a lot of information in it. And uh, the game itself also looks pretty darn cool, so that's mine up. Apocthulhu, I guess is how you'd say it. Very cool. Well, mine is a little bit dark and grim. I have a game called Errant. E-R-R-A-N-T-E. It's a game about homeless people wandering a world that has no place for them. It's dark. It's sad. Daunting. Not the darkness I thought you were going for. No. Uh, it's a it's a little bit of a darker darker game, but it, it seems really interesting. It is GMless, but it does have the option to be run with a GM. And what sort of caught my attention was it is a, a different kind of story, a more heavy, serious tone. The art in the book is all like charcoal art, like done with just in grayscale and and charcoal. It's pay what you want. So, you know, you can put as much as you feel is is appropriate into this. It does seem very heavy, so maybe content warning, but I think it it seems like a really interesting game. And I've been on sort of a kick for those heavier content heavy games recently, but this one seems really, really interesting and and seems like a really cool game to check out. Yeah, this does look, it looks like it's a pretty simple D6 based system too. Yeah, it seems like a simple D6 system, like a dice pull system, but just a really heavy, dark game. And the art is reflective of how heavy and dark it is. You can see that just some of the designs. Yeah. Oh, well, my game, I guess, is going to come as a little upper to that. My game is called Someone Has Died. 
Um, it is an improvisational game based on someone who has died and you are someone who is trying to collect on their will. So everyone is intruding upon the arbiter of the will that you should be getting part of it, a bequeathal. And it's kind of hilarious and madcap because there is your relationship to the deceased and then there are some quirks and then other people can object to the uh, standing that you have for why you should receive this thing. Like, so your identity might be that uh, you were their pet talking dog or that you're a robot who developed feelings for them. Or my favorite one is you are a person with a spider for a face. Like they just have a ridiculous uh, visitor from the future, voiceover actor, king of Sweden. But you have to have some sort of identity and some weird twisted relationship to the deceased. And you're trying to convince the uh, lawyer that you should be getting the the lump sum of what they're leaving behind. It's a lighthearted game about death. And it was designed by these three uh, wonderful women who they were in college at the time. And if you backed their Kickstarter at a certain level, they wrote you a custom obituary with a drawing by the artist who did the game. So I have my own obituary framed upstairs (laughs) with a caricature of me. But uh, it's a fantastic game called Someone Has Died by Gather Round Games. If you like the snake oil sort of improvisational style game. So it's like loosely related to uh, role playing, but it is just, oh my goodness, it is a fantastic, fantastic game. Yeah, it's now this is what, card based, correct? Yeah, so I mean, there are cards here for, for prompts and to help give you ideas, but a lot of it is that improvisational narrative trying to convince somebody that you should be getting, you should be getting the goods. <laughs> yeah, this, this does look fun. That looks like a blast. That looks like something, something that I would pull out at a party and be like, all right, we're going to play this. <laughs> and my friends would like sink their teeth into it. Yeah, it's, it's always been when I pulled it out, people were like, uh, what? But the <laughs> art style is amazing. The gameplay is infectious. I have not laughed as hard in a long time is when I've played someone has died. Oh, this does look. Yeah. I, yeah. If you, it, I would definitely play this. <laughs> hey, we should have a, uh, maybe next time you have me on is we have a reading of the will and, uh, we're all vying for why we should be getting the lion's share. <laughs> maybe next time we have you on, we could just play this digitally in a way. That's what I just said. Yeah. But with more words. Yeah, well, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, I should be receiving the lion's share of the estate. Right? Steve clearly did <laughs> not make a good claim on this. Uh, yes, but see, you're the only person whose name doesn't match the show, so you don't get anything. <laughs> Man, you know, you do have a good point there. but And I, I made a more concise point, so I don't understand. <laughs> see, and there we go, everybody. You have now just been demoed. Someone has died. I was the king of Sweden. Steve number one was a man with a spider for a face. And Steve number two was the robot who developed feelings for the deceased. <laughs> Thank you very much. Come again. <laughs> We're here all week. <laughs> well, we could be. Isn't that the scary thing? <laughs> hey, it's out on the internet. It's always there, right? That's right. <laughs> oh, oh, oh wow. All well, right. Any closing thoughts from anybody? <laughs> uh, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you inviting me on. I love talking about things that I'm passionate about. And this basically hit on just about 
everything in my my upper tier of passion. So that was great. I had a great time. Well, it's, it's been great having you on, and we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. You know, Steve said about reaching out, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. What's the worst we're going to get a no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you mean thank- I could have gotten out of this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. And we wouldn't have stalked you or anything. Oh, <laughs> The next time Hooli just tries to introduce you to a random stranger, go, it's not one of those psycho Steves, right? <laughs> it's, it's not another Steve, is it? <laughs> Help, I'm being held against my will in Steve's basement. Uh. <laughs> that's probably a good point to wrap things up, huh? Yeah, <laughs> with that... Good. With that, we do want to remind everybody, as always, links are in the show notes. And with that, get out there and play some RPGs and be kind to one another. Go game. Yep. Take care, y'all. Thanks, Steve and Steve, for agreeing to swap our feeds. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more from them, you can follow the Steves on Twitter at andrpgs, A-N-D-R-P-G-S, or head directly to their website, me and Steve, rpg.podbean.com. We'll be back next week with new episodes playing Darla Burroughs. Dear Great Cthulhu, please stop giving me superpowers. And you can follow us for more information on Twitter at Dice Warriors. Our theme music is by Epic Game Music. Our editing is done by me, Justin Eacock. And until next week, dear listener, thank you for being a terrible warrior. Be good to each other.